hello, this is Jonathan Gadir, and welcome to another episode of Loose Cannon, the Civil Liberties podcast. And I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed co-host, Parnell McGuinness. Hi, Parnell. Hello. So states and territories across Australia have relied on emergency laws to manage the pandemic, and these laws have given government health and health officials broad and supposedly temporary powers. And as listeners to this podcast probably know, the Victorian government is now embroiled in a political battle to get its new pandemic response bill through the upper house in Victoria with a vote expected next week. Um, I've been a little disappointed by the responses from some organisations that are uh, defenders of human rights and civil liberties. They've been very, very polite. Um, on the other hand, you have um, Victorian Bar Association saying the bill authorises, quote, virtually unlimited interference, unquote, with the liberties of Victorians. Um, you know, the, they've pointed out that once a pandemic declaration is made, you know, the health minister can make any order and that that power to make any order is not constrained by much, except by the minister's subjective belief that the order's reasonably necessary to protect public health. So I think it's really good that um, we've got someone who's, uh, you know, across the action joining us today. That person is William Partlett, Associate Professor at Melbourne Law School. And, um, you know, he's been publicising what's in the bill and educating us in various media articles. Uh, glad to have you here, Will. Yeah, good to be with you guys. So, Will, um, you've written there are six things that we really need to focus on to make this bill better. Uh did you want to maybe go through them and we can tease out what are the issues? Yeah, for sure. I mean, let me start out by saying that, you know, I think the response of, of, of some groups to this law has been somewhat confused because in some ways this, this process is actually a really important process. And it's an important process because the context is that in every state, and territory in Australia, essentially the old state of emergency laws and the public health acts provide pretty much unlimited power to the executive in the event of a public health emergency. Now, that is why is that the case? Because generally public health emergencies and the state of emergencies, we're thinking of you know, some form of salmonella poisoning um, or a bushfire or something like that, some, a short-term emergency. So really the states, have you know there's been very little focus on these laws there's been and, and it's largely just been okay well you know in a, in a time of short-term emergency we need pretty much uh, we don't need to worry too much about procedures and checks and balances and so forth so so anyway so, so the first thing to point out is that what is happening in victoria is actually positive like you know we vi we vitally need a pandemic uh fit for purpose law in victoria new south wales needs one every state in australia needs one um, that will actually bring in checks and balances and bring in transparency and bring and help us kind of focus and, and cope with a lot of the issues that um, we're currently facing and that we've learned, right? Because we now know that pandemics can last for years and years and years. No one knows when this one's going to end. Um, and as a result, we desperately need to think about how and particularly at the state level, and this is something that I think is really interesting about this, is we normally focus a lot of our scrutiny on the Commonwealth and what the Commonwealth is doing and so, so forth and so on. But in the last two years in Australia, and this is not just Australia, it's other parts of the world as well, 
power has shifted to the subnational level. And in Australia, it's been the states. Obviously, we all know who our premier is. If you live in Victoria, you you definitely know who Dan Andrews is, um, and you know who the chief health officer is, and you know who the health minister is. And you know you probably wouldn't have a lot of people wouldn't have known that information. You know, one two years ago. So so we really need to be focusing on these state level laws. And this is a conversation that that is actually relatively new. You know, not a lot of scrutiny has been placed on the states and on how states operate. And so that's really the context for this bill. Unfortunately, uh, for a number of reasons, this bill has had to be fast tracked, uh, which is which has closed a lot of the abilities for individuals to consult. Um, and for, you know, and on such an important bill. Um, but the reality is that's, you know, that's just that's, you know, the Victorian government needs to get basically before the 15th of December a bill through so that it will be able to keep its COVID, some of its COVID settings in place. Um, so so as, as we're going forward, and we've still got a couple of weeks and, and you know, and, and the debate goes on in the in this week and next week, there are, the, you know, there are these six things that we think that could make the bill even better. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'll go through them, you know, quite quickly, and then we can kind of pick up on them. You know, I think, you know, one of the most important ones is Parliament needs to be in the game. We need to bring Parliament into the scrutiny of executive pandemic management. Um, this has been a problem in every state, not just in Victoria, but it's been a it's been a problem in Tasmania. It's been a problem in New South Wales. It's been a problem in many states where they where Parliament and particularly the upper houses have struggled. To, look, to review, to look at, to scrutinize the, ex, the, the large use of what we call delegated legislation, right? You know, essentially decree orders issued by the health minister in many cases, or by the chief health officer, depending on the state regime, you know, that we need to bring parliament into a form of review of this. And so one of the things that we suggest is bringing in a, a specialized cross-party um, oversight regime where you have a specialized committee that can oversee this process, uh, and then and in, the leader of this crucially is not the a leader of the government, it, or that you know is not a is not a member of the government. Is actually the leader is either a crossbencher or a member of the opposition, uh, and the and the government does not have all the numbers. The government has represent, representation on this on this committee, but it wouldn't have the majority. So that this institution can actually provide real oversight. So it can have call witnesses. It can. It can, you know, ask for documents. It can issue reports. It can make non-binding recommendations and so forth. But this is important, and we've seen this develop in uh, New Zealand. We've seen it develop actually at the Commonwealth level. There's this what's called the Senate Select Committee on COVID-19. Um, so that's just one example of where we say Parliament should get more involved. Um, we also have talked about um, bolstering this what's called the Independent Oversight Committee. At the moment in the proposed bill, this, this uh, expert committee is fully appointed by the health minister. And we said, we, we think that that's a problem. Um, it should be appointed. I mean, there should be independent, you know, maybe the Doherty Institute should be able to appoint one representative. Maybe the Law Institute of Victoria should be able to appoint someone, get, give some of these appointments and these experts to be appointed to particular bodies or stakeholders in Victorian society. Um, we also think that there needs to be um, a review mechanism for detention. Uh, there is quite strong detention powers given not just to police, but also to authorized officers uh, in this bill. Uh, we, you know, obviously detention is sometimes needed to quarantine individuals and so forth, but we wanna make sure that this is uh, actually done with some independent merits review. Um, we also 
want to see um, particularly some proviso in there for safe protest. And I can, we can talk more about that as well. Um, during uh, the, the last lockdown, there was a, a convoy protest, for instance, with uh, around a, a refugee hotel in Victoria where everyone was following the health advice, but they were in, in a convoy of cars and they were all fined for protesting. So we're thinking about, you know, if you can protest in a safe an epidemiologically safe way, you know, that, that should be seen as a, as a reason to leave even during a hard lockdown. If you're wearing a mask, if you're, you know, exercising in your, in your car, doing something like that, um, that it doesn't pose any threat to the society uh, at all. And finally, the, the last one is we think that there needs to be some sort of sunset review. Actually, interestingly, if you look at UK, the UK has a specialized fit for purpose pandemic law, but the, the with a, but it says within two years, it's going to be sunset. It goes out of effect and, and it needs to be, um, to be uh, kind of revisited. So, cause we'll, you know, we're kind of building the ship as we're going at the moment. We, we, we'll know a lot more in two years. And failing that, we asked for um, some sort of robust review. At the moment, the bill has a very weak um, kind of font review process built into it. So those are some of the ways I think that the bill could be improved. And if it, you know, I think, you know, if, if, if these can be added into the bill, I think it actually will become a model for other states in, in Australia in, in developing their pandemic laws. Okay, before we get into it, I think there was one bit you skipped over, which was the the measures targeted at specific groups. There's uh, some override of uh, discrimination laws, and I think that's caused about a lot of uh, community concern. They've changed, they've changed that in the amendments. So, that, so the amendments they introduced last Monday, they've changed that. Right, okay. So what it said before was we can apply pandemic response measures to different people. Um, attributes, yeah, based on okay. attributes, including political belief, religion, race. Yeah, that's what, that's what it said before. It now the, the government has agreed to change that. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, that language. Yeah, Parnell, I know you've got some issues to ask Will about in respect of experts and expert committees. Yeah, look, I... Well, one of the things that has occurred to me in, in looking at this is, you know, first of all, I feel quite allergic towards the, the, the very concept of experts after the past couple of years because I feel like experts and expertise has been used in quite a political way sometimes to keep us locked down or, you know, to impose a, a certain risk profile on society, which I feel might not have had such a such a prescriptive risk profile. But I'm actually going to ask the question a different way. Listening to you just now, it occurs to me, is this more or less what Sweden had? This sort of expert committee, which, um, which weighed up the pros and cons of locking down. And on balance, decided not to and therefore kept Sweden open, which has proven now to be a very controversial decision. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the first thing to say is that the expert committee that is created in this bill has absolutely no power. It is purely a recommendatory body. It is there to, you know, so the minister, as it currently states, the minister can consult the minister can ask for advice from individual um, experts on the committee. The minister does not have to take any of that advice. Um, the minister obviously is appointing all of these individuals and the minister is, is setting the terms and conditions of these, of these uh, experts as well. So presumably 
I mean, it doesn't stay in the, in the law, but the minister, I presume, could relieve individuals of, of service on this, on, this, um, on this committee. So the committee is really quite weak. How is that different to what has existed to date? Because my understanding was that experts have, in fact, been making recommendations to government, but it's the government that has chosen to hide behind or to use the, use the term, um, we're just following the expert advice. Yeah, so I mean, I mean that's and that's one of the big changes the pandemic bill makes is it moves from a technocratic model. So where so you know formally the the all of the orders that were signed in Victoria were signed by uh, by Sutton, uh, the uh, chief health officer, or someone he delegated that power to. Um, so you know it was and under so under the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, those powers all were essentially. Uh, inhered in, uh, in, in Sutton, in the chief health officer. So it was a highly technocratic approach. Now, what's interesting, as anyone who's lived in Victoria in the last two years remembers, is that we saw some of Sutton on television, but we, met, we saw a lot more of Dan Andrews, uh, the, the premier, obviously. And, you know, so there was, a, there was some question of what was the interaction between the two of them uh, with respect to those decisions. Uh, and as a result, I think the decision was, was made with this new pandemic bill proposed pandemic bill, which is currently uh, obviously sitting in parliament, is to switch to a political model, which is so now the power goes to the premier to make a pandemic declaration, and then the health minister uh, issues the orders. And the health minister can consider what the chief health officer has said, but doesn't have to, um, and can take into account a number of other uh, factors. So it, it's a really a kind of political model that's been brought in, in the current proposed uh, pandemic bill that we have sitting right now in, in Victorian Parliament. Now, how does that aspect compare to everywhere else? Like, I know we're focused on Victoria, but is it be- like better or worse or the same as the other states and territories? Actually, well, yeah. So, I mean, it's there's been a lot of talk in Victoria about how this is essentially the New South Wales approach. Right? So, the Public Health Act in New South Wales gives full power to the health health minister Brad Hazard to issue the you know pandemic orders, basically. Um, And so as a result, there's been a lot of talk about how Victoria has taken the New South Wales approach. What's interesting is that the rest of the other states, Tasmania, South Australia, WA, Queensland, and so forth, they all lodge the power in the chief health officer. Um, uh, So yeah, so it's, 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 I think, I mean, you know, my, my view is generally given, I know you guys had a quite interesting discussion with Sasha in the last podcast about this, but that, you know, it, it, you know, the health advice doesn't necessarily track perfectly onto what the what the lockdown settings exactly look like. So it's probably more honest to give this final decision making about the you know the actual parameters of the lockdown or the parameters of the COVID settings to a political um, minister, whether it's the premier or the health minister who's responsible to Parliament. Um, so yeah, so my, my sense is that you know like that's a good change in the Victorian approach. It's just that as we point out in that in that piece, and I think a number of other people have pointed this out as well, if you're going to turn this into a political process of decision-making, you need to give Parliament real scrutiny powers to oversee the uh, exercise of that power, right, because it's a political power. Right, and that is that is more or less what happened in New South Wales, as the email trail <clears throat> between Kerry Chant and the Premier sort of revealed recently that showed that um, Chant had in fact advised that all of Greater Sydney be locked down equally. So the places which had a high outbreak as well as places with less transmission 
Um, and the, the Premier then made the decision not to lock down the areas with less transmission, um, which makes me think, you know, of course, the one thing that isn't allowed for in in expert testimony or expert advice is the politics of the expert themselves. So Carrie Chant, you know, perhaps admirably, has a very strong focus on equity and, and equality. And so she feels that um, every health measure should be targeted towards equity. And so she thought all of Greater Sydney should be locked down. The Premier made the decision then, no, we're just going to apply the health advice to where there is a health problem. So there is a sort of ironic switch around in this that I just wanted to sort of add for listeners benefit there. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think so, it, you know, so the the Victorian bill will move Victoria in that direction towards saying ultimately that the health minister in making pandemic orders will be able to, as in New South Wales, take into account a number of different factors. Uh, beyond just, I mean, obviously there will be a very strong reliance on that. You'd hope there's a very strong reliance on the health, um, on the health advice, but you know, of course the health advice doesn't track on to the, to the settings hundred percent. So yeah, they take into advice other things and, and that's then subject to, to debate and deliberation uh, and parliamentary oversight and scrutiny, whether through, you know, questioning in question time or in through a specialized committee. Ask about the detention part of it. Is there? How does it compare with the, what we have in other states and territories? Well, again, it's much. I mean, the, the Victorian one is much more extensive. I mean, this bill is built 117 pages long. Um, most public health acts in other states are very short, right? And in fact, if you look at New, like just look at New South Wales, for instance, it spends a lot of time talking about I think salmonella outbreaks or you know uh, poison water. You know, so there's. So there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that there's really just not a lot of discussion of quarantine or detention in the other states uh, health acts at all. Uh, whereas in this one, there is a lot. And of course, that makes sense. We know that you know, after the last two years, we know that one of the key ways to um, to control kind of infection in a, in a pandemic is to, is to is to basically keep people in one place. Right. Deprive them of their right to movement. Um, and the, this bill calls that detention. Now, it's interesting why they called it that. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but anyways, they call it detention, and, it, and it's, it's very extensive. It gives extension, it gives detention powers to, um, to authorized officers who already had that power under the pre-existing act, but now it gives the authorized officers powers to detain classes of individuals um, as well. Um, so, you know, there's pretty significant detention powers here that can be, uh, that can be renewed on a 24-hour basis. Um, and, you know, in many ways, I think the legal community doesn't really suggest, we don't think that, that these essential powers are problematic. I mean, we just want to be ensured that they're exercised with some form of independence, merits, review, scrutiny beyond what's created in the current act. The current act, the current or the proposed bill at the moment provides for what's called a detention review officer. Uh, these detention review officers are meant to be, they're actually uh, lawyers, they have to be lawyers for 10 years, but the detention review officer is also subject to an order uh, from the health minister. The health minister can order them um, to, do, to do certain things um, as well as, uh, and then if the detention review officer suggests that individual detention should end, it then goes, it then a recommendation is made to the chief health officer who's at the final word. So again, th this internal executive process, I think most people who've looked at it have 
thought it's actually not sufficient and not a sufficient safeguard on the pretty broad executive detention powers that currently exist. I'm not really comfortable with detention as a word. Maybe it just means what it says. Maybe they actually want a detention power rather than a sort of vague, watery, um, you know, stay-at-home order type of power. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's meant for, you know, if someone is... Is ref- if someone is infectious and they're refusing to to stay at home, I think that's when they say, okay, well, that's when they want to use the idea of detention. I presume that's what they're talking about. Uh, it's it, it remains to be seen, but I mean, however they exercise this power, it needs to be uh, exercised with with um, a level of uh, scrutiny, you know, and scrutiny that is not an internal executive process controlled by the health minister. Um, but by a, you know, an independent body, whether that's, there's a number of different ways in which that could be done. VCAT uh, could be, could do that in the, in the Victorian context. Um, you could appoint uh, individual, you know, specialized magistrate to do this. You know, there's different mm-hmm. ways in which expedited independent review could happen, but it needs, certainly needs to be overseen. Do you think this would fly in the US or in Canada? Well, it's, I mean, it's very hard to, it's very hard to say uh depending on where you are i mean those are of course the u.s is 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 extremely pluralistic and different depending on which parts of the u.s you're in or in canada as well um Mm. but you know these broad detention powers you know they're they i think they you know if they are if they are necessary they need to be exercised with oversight i think that's that's the the bare minimum i think we need on that so I just, you know, noting your sort of very interesting scholarly background, including studying um, Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc, I thought, I thought it might be an interesting question to ask you, Will, are there for you in the way that this is formulated any red flags? So, you know, obviously... I don't expect Australia or Victoria to turn into a totalitarian state anytime soon, but I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on what are the sort of what are the sort of things that worry you when you look at bills like this? What are the sort of things that ring a bell and make you think, hmm, this is this is where those regimes started to push through greater controls of their populations? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the first thing to say is, you know, I'm a I'm, uh, I study the, those regions. I'm also a historian, so I'm, you know, I've got historical training. So the first thing to say is, obviously, the the former Soviet republics have a very, very different history than uh, than Australia does. So that's that's the the first thing to say. And you know, so as a result, it's very difficult to make comparisons on that ground. Now, what I will say that you know does worry me, and you know, I've written about. Um, um, in, in different contexts is one of the things that, uh, you know, you, you, you see from, at least from studying the parts of the world, you know, the former Soviet republics is, is what is, is an understanding of importance of structures and importance of relationships between institutions. Um, you know, whether that be, you know, the relationship in the Australian context between the the um, the government and parliament, or the relationship between the government and the courts. Um, so right. So and one of, so one of the things that I find really interesting, and I think that's really drawn me to this pandemic bill, is this pandemic bill is what in the UK they would call a constitutional statute. 
it sets up a regime whereby it creates a special set of relationships between our kind of institutions and separations of powers that um, are, um, you know, that potentially can last for a long period of time, right? The, the premier under the current proposed Victorian law can, can, call, can issue a pandemic declaration for three months at a time and can continually do that indefinitely. So we need to kind of think about what's the relationship between institutions in this setup that the pandemic bill creates. Um, and, you know, one of the things that concerns me is, of course, that, you know, Australia has, as well as Victoria, a very, very deep history of parliamentary democracy and parliament is the key institution. And the concern that I have and many others have um, about this, and you've seen this, I think, very much in what the Victorian Bar said, the Law Institute of Victoria, Victoria, the, the Victorian Ombudsman, Deborah Glass and others, is, is a concern that this pandemic bill is not actually addressing the problem that we have, that we face and that we've seen over the last two years, which is pandemic management has been operating under these pre-existing laws that essentially allow for full-scale executive governance, right? With very little scrutiny from courts and very little scrutiny from parliament. Uh, and that's something we should be concerned about. Everyone in Australia should be concerned about. And, you know, the concern we have about this Victorian pandemic laws, we're saying, okay, here's a fit for purpose law and it's not fixing the problem, right? It's, it's, in some ways, it's keeping that old, that, that existing problem from the last two years in place. Um, so that's the concern. And that problem is, of course, that there still remains not sufficient uh, oversight from, particularly from parliament. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't pick up this emerging practice that I mentioned before, whereby parliaments are, are, are bringing, you know, the members of the opposition and the, and the crossbench into a general oversight committee type situation. And, you know, in the classic example of this now is, is the work that the, that the, actually, interestingly, the Labor Party, Katie Gallagher, is doing at the Commonwealth level. The Senate Select Committee on COVID-19 is doing a fantastic job of oversight over what the Morrison government is doing. And I think it's kind of ironic that now at, this, at the state level, the Labor government here at, in Victoria, the Andrews government, is, is, has not put this in. Because, of course, at the national level, that's their key Proposal. They want more parliamentary oversight of, of Morrison. So, I, you know, I think we, you know, the, the emerging practice here is we need to be thinking about how to get Parliament back into these games. So, in this game, so we don't have essentially executive managerialism, right? We, where we just have the executive saying, "Well, I want to keep people safe without," and and basically dodging or under or avoiding scrutiny. And that can that we've seen that happen at all levels of government in Australia. We've seen that happen all over the world, to be honest. And I think it's an important project of this pandemic bill. And we hope we hope in the next week or so, we're gonna see a bill that actually brings in some more checks and balances. Because of course that's the center of, 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 you know, of, of our pandemic management going forward is we can, we've learned that you know, executives like power, they don't like oversight, they don't like checks and balances. And it's important now for us to begin to figure out how we can do that in a way that is appropriate. Do you think uh, a human rights act or human rights charter makes any difference? Because I, I mean, I, we've had guests on like James Allen who have said there's no difference to when, when, when the rubber hits the road, judges don't actually check government power. And we've seen that in the pandemic when people have challenged the curfew, for example, they've just deferred to the government. Do you, do you think the presence or absence of a human rights act or human rights protections in the constitution makes any difference? I, look, I think it makes a difference, yes. Um, how much of a difference it makes at the height of a pandemic, um, I think 
you know, everywhere in the world, courts um, are unwilling to, to really step in and actually invalidate um, actions taken by governments, by executives in, in, in the height of a pandemic. There are, uh, and, and may, you know, we've seen that everywhere. You see that everywhere during wartime, you know, one of the most activist courts in the world, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially backed off and allowed essentially uh, Roosevelt to detain Japanese Americans. So, you know, courts generally are not very effective checks on executive power in times of emergency. And this is, again, is another reason why, you know, I think a lot of us and, you know, I'm, I'm a strong part of this, think that we really need to be thinking about um parliamentary checks, right? Parliament and political, ensuring that political deliberation continues during pandemics and political discussion. And that's done in a way where it's not, you know, the parliament doesn't get in and start actually disallowing huge numbers of, of orders, but actually starts to scrutinize and say, well, take one example, the, the, the tower lockdowns in, in uh, July of 2020 in Victoria, um, you know, Parliamentary scrutiny step in immediately afterwards and say, "What happened? How do, was was notice given? What was the what were the issues? Bring in witnesses, issue reports, talk to media. You know, like this kind of thing is important. I think so that the government knows that it is there is there is scrutiny, there is oversight. It might not be you know real time scrutiny, um, but I you know I generally think that that's the kind of uh, cut way in which we can get checks and balances in. I, I just don't think courts and human rights charters and so forth are going to be particularly effective in times of, you know, of, of real pandemic emergency. Right. So we've got a new human rights commissioner um, who's just started up, Lorraine Finlay, and she has sort of stated that her her focus for the for her term of five years is going to be rights and, you know, and freedoms in particular. If you had an agenda that you could give her around this, what would it be? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it would be looking at emerging, you know, this sounds like really overly uh, kind of technocratic itself, but best practices or, or ways in which parliaments are, around the world are developing ways of, of scrutinizing um, uh, the ways in which executives operate. Um, so, and, and in the Australian context, I think a really interesting, and this is a line of research that I'm pursuing with um, uh, members of the Center for um, Public Integrity, uh, is looking at the way in which the upper house, the role of the upper house in Australian parliamentary democracy, the role that they can have, because of course, upper houses, in most cases, the upper house is not controlled by the government. In many cases, that there are crossbenchers or independent uh, members of parliament who have to uh, sign off on pieces of legislation and so forth, those crossbenchers can play a really important role, not just in negotiating laws, but also in oversight. Um, you know, and we, can, and we can see that, I think, play out quite well. I mean, New South Wales is a really interesting example. One of the, the New South Wales cross-party parliamentary oversight committee is, is actually headed up by a, by a member of the Greens Party. Um, and has and it's done a fantastic job of, of I think of of looking of, of scrutinizing and so forth. So I think you know crossbenchers, small parties, independents, you know I think we can look at that. And so and that's a different model of um, of rights protection, right? It's, it's not one that's just focused on courts. Now we we do want to think about courts and we want to look at proportionality and so forth and so on. And how proportionality operates in a pandemic is a really interesting question. But I do think we want to be looking at political models of rights protection as well, because I think it's 
you know, in some ways, I mean, and this is something that a number of people have been writing about, the, the, the current model of parliamentary scrutiny is kind of failing. And, it's, and, it, and this is not a pandemic story. It's a, it existed pre-pandemic. Um, it's that, you know, governments were saying, well, look, we, we're, you know, governments increasingly operating through delegated legislation, right, through executive orders and so forth, and either not tabling them or, dis, or essentially exempting them from all forms of scrutiny. So, you know, this is, and, and it's a trend that's really picked up during the pandemic. Uh, and I think it's, I'd say that's, I, I would hope that would be one of the things that um, would be looked at quite closely is how can we revitalize the role of the upper houses in this kind of scrutiny to get real forms of political uh, rights protection, right? And that's, and that's a deliberative model. It's a dialogue model. It's one that's much more consistent with, you know, the Australia's, um, you know, kind of rejection of a constitutional bill of rights and so forth. It's much more consistent with Australian history and, and you know, distrust of unelected judges and giving them all that power. So what, but if, if you're not going to give that power to judges, then, you know, let's, let's ensure that politics and deliberation and discussion and transparency in debate essentially do this. Because, you know, I think one of the things that has kept and played an important role in, in many, and probably not as important a role as it should, but is, you know, it's is, is been, you know, discussion in media and so forth. I think that's been one of the areas that has been probably the strongest check on the power of many premiers across Australia in the exercise of these powers. So I think the way to do that is to say, how can we, how can we build on that and, and, and build a better form of parliamentary scrutiny? Uh, I think that would be a really uh, important um, area to, to look into. I'm interested in whether you think um, the community uh, opposition, the community backlash is uh, understandable, reasonable, justified. Is it something that's related, do you think, to specifically what Victorians have been through in the past year and a half? Um, you know, there's been a lot of snobby kind of dismissing of, um, of the uh, demonstrations in particular. Tell me a bit about your, your feelings on those. Yeah, I mean, it's... Look, I mean, look, there's, I think there are a number of different reasons people have taken to the streets um, to protest. Um, you know, I think, so, uh, you know, it's very clear some people are there for really, really nasty reasons, right? They're there to threaten individuals, threaten members of the crossbench. They're there to bring out really nasty kind of Nazi imagery and so forth. Um, you know, I don't think I, I tend to agree that the that, you know, there's been a lot of focus on that, which is unfortunate. I mean, this, I think that it's a minority of people, but they're certainly there and that's, and that's concerning. Uh, those people are concerning. I think there are, there are a lot of people there as well who are um, opposed to the vaccination mandates that have been put into place. Um, I do know that those are people from all sides of politics. I mean, I know that I have personally known an individual who's a member of the Greens who is uh, who's who's opposed to vaccination mandates and has been at some of the protests? Um, so look, I think there's an and then there are people who are there because they don't like lockdowns because they're still very frustrated about um, a lot of what happened. They lost their jobs and and so forth. So there's just just the general frustration. Of course, you know, for anyone who's in Melbourne, we've been sitting in in some form of lockdown for 270 days. It's a long time. I think people are so that you know the timing has been. You know, it's the timing is not great, really, for sensible discussion. And I do think there are also some people there who have some concerns about just wanting to get the balance right uh, here. Um, I do think that's the case, and certainly that's the case in 
amongst a lot of the legal groups that have participated uh, in the discussion as well is, is, you know, this is an opportunity. Maybe it's a little bit more condensed that we would have liked, yeah. but it's an opportunity to, to get a, to try to find a better balance between, um, you know, manage, you know, health, health management, and obviously the importance of protecting public health, but also, you know, there are ways in which we can continue to protect public health um, with, with scrutiny. How do we do that? That's the discussion we need to have. So we yeah. can, lead to the same outcomes, right? I mean, you know, it's been a, uh, Australia's had a very successful response to, to COVID in comparison with most of the rest of the world. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that it, we can't get, we can't learn from this and try to figure out some additional ways to, to build in. And, you know, and, and of course, Victoria has had some of the longest, we had the most experience with this because we've had the most um, strict and longest um, set of COVID restrictions so in a way, it's like it, it kind of makes sense that Victoria is where this debate is starting. Yeah. And again, I go back to what I said before. I really do hope that they get the right that, that you know, we get a, a good bill here because I think it will shape the discussion in the other states going forward. I know that already in New South Wales, um, people I know in the legal community are already talking about the importance of, of really figuring out something next year for New South Wales, because the New South Wales Public Health Act is just is essentially you know, unlimited executive power. Um, so it's, it's time for, you know, I think it is time for all the states to, to and hopefully Victoria can, can really provide a, you know, a, a model for that. And, and, in but of course that's, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, that's, that's what we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks, I guess. Yeah. I'm just very suspicious about reasonable this you know so-called reasonable grounds you know decisions made by ministers based on what we've just been through with uh, an exit ban you know people not being allowed to leave based on some decision that a minister health minister made at the federal level that it was a reasonable measure to stop the pandemic you know what i mean like uh, and then every court challenge seemed to falter because no no court was willing to question the reasonableness of that yeah. It is also very early to be discussing a bill like this, isn't it? Given that yeah. we haven't really even done a postmortem on the on yeah. the the last couple of years and taken lessons out of that. Do you think this should be deferred at all, Will, or, or are you happy with this discussion happening now? Look, I think, yeah, I mean, my view and the view that I've, that my colleagues also um, others have said is, you know, is we need, you know. The UK has a sunset clause on their law. It's it's two years and two years time. Let's let's step back and start again, and or, or you know or learn what we've we've already learned. I mean, there's a real sense now we're kind of doing this really in a really rushed way. The debate is is all over the shop because of all kinds of different factors. You know, it would I think be a good thing to have you know a, a much more reasoned debate. Yeah, in two years time, two and a half years time, three years time when we're going to have learned a lot more and we can step back and say okay the way this decision was made was incorrect how can we or you know or this kind of decision was disproportionate i mean you know a, a conversation that needs to be had is is how do we understand proportionality um you know if it's the case that courts are not um going to be really powerful checks then we need to be able to to introduce into our political discourse right a discussion of proportionality how can we achieve the same health outcomes but do it in a less less impactful way um you know th those types of conversations i think are important to have um and i don't yeah i just don't think we're and i think i mean everyone's struggling with this all around the world of course 
Um, so, you know, in two years time, we'll know a lot more. So it is, it is, it probably is a bit early uh, for this discussion. Um, but, you know, I think we'll see what we, co what we come up with, but, it, you know, it's it certainly, it's certainly triggered a lot of discussions and I think a, a very helpful discussion. I mean, the, the, the discussion in the Legislative Council and the, and the you know, participation of the, of the crossbenchers and their, what they've said on the, on the media and so forth suggests that, you know, we're, that there are real deliberations going on between the government and the crossbench at the moment about these very issues we've been talking about. And that's a really healthy thing. Okay. William Partlett, Associate Professor at Melbourne Law School. Thank you very much for this. Very, very interesting discussion. Thanks to everyone for joining us on Loose Cannon. Please do get in contact. The email address is loosecannonpod at gmail.com. And also Parnell's Twitter is in the show notes. We'd like to hear from people on guests to have on and topics to cover. See you all next time.